Firstly, I can't thank you enough for being on. I really appreciate it. I can only imagine how busy you are, but after reading your story, uh, several of your stories, I was thinking, I, I have to get Thomas on, and I really, really want to hear everything he knows. And I get a lot of questions, and I'm certainly not an expert, but I feel like I kind of know one in you. So, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. So, uh, firstly, I would just like to say that uh, our fan base and our listeners are athletes, uh, high school athletes, student athletes, um, people of all kinds in health and wellness, and people who just aspire to know more about fitness and wellness. So I, I wanted to dive into how you got your start and how you um, just became a, not necessarily a biohacker, or would you call it a biohacker? Uh, it's not a term that um, that I use much anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it's associated with things that um, like shortcuts and computer hacking and uh, things that I no longer think of as what we're trying to do here. I'm not looking for a shortcut and I'm not okay. looking to hack anything. Um, so mm -hmm. an alternative term hasn't really popped up, whether it's wellness or fitness or whatever it is. But there's definitely an association with personal responsibility. That is, um, even a rejection of centralized, traditional, institutional medicine and the idea that no one is responsible or more responsible for your health and your fitness than you. And the only way to find out what works is to run your own N equals one study on yourself. So there's something to this, uh, this hacking mentality, as long as it's um, turned inward uh, to tr in an effort to find out what's going to work for me, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Understood. And I, uh, you know, myself, I, I was an athlete for many years. Now I'm a washed up athlete, but I was an athlete for many years. And um, I trained hard. I was purely output and I've really pushed myself. And now I'm dealing with the residual effects of uh, a playing career and playing high school, uh, high school, collegiate and professional sports. And now, you know, I train, I, I push myself pretty hard. And as you said, I know it's a personal response, personal responsibility, but I'm also getting into how to live my best life, how to have great feeling uh, each and every day, great energy, great cognitive function, and to always build on my foundation of resilience. And I know you've hit on that a great deal. So could you kind of take us into how you found your way into this and, and, and we'll touch on some of the, uh, the key things that we talked about offline. Yeah. Resilience is, um, is my entry point. I'm, I'm a college professor. I have a desk job. I'm a sedentary overweight 57 year old man. So, um, you know, your audience, they might say, well, why should I take any advice from him? He's not an athlete. He's not out there pushing himself with the weight training, and he's certainly not ripped. So it's a good question. You know, how did I get into this? I'm a civil engineer, and I'm studying resilient infrastructure. So uh, what happens after the flood or the hurricane or the wildfire? And how does the infrastructure adapt to minimize the catastrophe and recover as quickly as possible. So here's what I figure out. It's not the concrete. It's not the cables. It's not the steel. It's the people. 
It's the creative, adaptive response of the people. There are things that they can do that make things worse, and there are things that they can do that make things better. So I started studying people and kind of the psychology of stress and adaptation rather than I'm moving away from the electric grid and the water distribution networks and those things that I've really been trained in. Same time, I have my own sort of adaptive crisis. This is, um, you know, you can call it midlife crisis, that's fine. But uh, my wife wasn't happy and she wanted a separation. I kind of took a look at myself and I said, I've been so focused on my kids and their health, I really let myself go. I mean, maybe my wife kind of has a point, you know, maybe she's just not attracted to me anymore. So I, I kind of hit that, um, that low point in my own self-esteem, self-perception, but it turned out to be the catalyst for me to do better. I used to be about 250 pounds, now I'm down to 210. Uh, you know, that's going in the right direction anyway. And um, I've done a lot of things since then to understand metabolism better, to understand my brain better, to, um, to try and work on my own longevity, because now, I'm at an age where a lot of guys are starting to think about chronic illnesses, the, the diseases associated with aging. Now, your younger guys, they're probably thinking competitiveness and performance because there are different uh, stages of life. And there are, these two things are a lot more related, as it turns out, than I thought. What keeps me healthy longer, what keeps me feeling young, is also, in many instances, the same thing that is going to help the younger audience perform and compete. So it's worth talking to about. Um, as far as the weight loss goes, uh, I've learned a lot about calories in, calories out. Uh, the people who are doing the best on um, the getting shredded are, of course, the bodybuilders. And the unfortunate thing is the urge to compete often leads to exogenous, I mean, I'm trying to find the right euphemism, but you're using drugs. Your body isn't making it anymore. It takes you away from nature rather than towards it. And in that case, I don't have anything to say that will help anybody because uh, a lot of what I've figured out so far started with an accident. Uh, that is just doing the ice baths. I'll tell you about that for other reasons. And then watching what happened to my testosterone, which went through the roof. But for me, it is about returning to nature rather than uh, using technology to push us away from nature. I love that. I love that. And, and we're learning more like the, the, the things that actually help us. It, it's so interesting. Connect, if you will are the actual things that we know today to, as, as disconnecting and, and not using all, all the systems and, and like things like grounding, things like cold water, uh, just the most basic things help us be better humans and function more optimally than what we're doing day to day and not using our brain or just scrolling and things of that nature. So for our listeners, uh, Thomas, uh, is PhD, super brilliant person. Um, you know, I was dying to get him on here. The way I found out about Thomas was I was listening to a story told by Joe Rogan about how you helped your testosterone go through the roof and 
You lowered your PSA, is that correct? Uh, and they say these things work against one another, but that's a myth. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an outdated sort of superstition. The research has updated the medical view, and your medical doctor might not know this because they don't always read the journals. Testosterone is anabolic. That is, it will build up tissues. And so the intuition used to be you want to lower testosterone, you want to lower insulin, which is good, you want to lower growth factors and human growth factors. Anything that would build up a cancer cell, you want to uh, lower these hormones to try and reduce the pace at which cancer spreads. But that doesn't, um, it doesn't hold up with the latest research. Testosterone and prostate cancer are not as antagonistic, uh, or that is, testosterone does not promote prostate cancer the way that people thought or hypothesized that it would. So some people have been surprised that I brought my PSA, which is a measure of inflammation. Doesn't mean I ever had cancer, but uh, brought that down at the same time my testosterone went up. But I don't think Joe was really curious about my PSA at all. Um, he was, he had David Goggins on the podcast, right? right? He wanted to yeah. talk to David about cold water and ice baths, but it was a particular time. If you remember uh, Liver King, had just got caught, right? And yeah. so, like, we didn't know he was juicing. I mean, come on. He yeah. makes his living as like a circus act, you know? And people love him. He's funny. He's got a great sense of humor. Not everything he says is wrong. Like, the, he's got a wonderfully entertaining Instagram account. And he probably could have said, well, of course I'm taking tea. I mean, what do you expect? This is what you're here for. He didn't say that. He denied it and denied it. And so when he was finally caught, uh, Joe had Derek more plates, more dates on there. And uh, Derek knows more about testosterone and bodybuilding than anybody I've ever heard. And so they were talking a little bit about Liver King, and it came up. Uh, well, what are some of the natural things that you can do to get your testosterone up there, and how high could it go? And that's when Joe found my article. By the time he had David Goggins on, Joe was fascinated because I'm saying, do your ice bath first and your exercise second. Nobody does it that way. You know, whether it's high school or college, anybody with any ice bath experience has always been using it for exercise recovery. Ah, my knees are sore. My legs are sore. And ice baths will reduce delayed muscle soreness. You know, like that next day when your, your legs are just aching. An ice bath after exercise will take that pain down, and it makes you feel like you can get back to performance quicker. So that's fine. Huberman had already told Joe Rogan, don't do your ice bath within four hours after finishing your workout because it will cut down your, your anabolic, your hypertrophic gains. And this is pretty good research. Well, what Huberman didn't tell Joe is it also cuts down your testosterone. And the two work together. You know, you think hypertrophy, you think uh, anabolic gains, you think muscle building, that's associated with testosterone. So how does this ice bath take down your soreness? It takes down your testosterone, which is the opposite of what most guys who are working out are really going for. So Joe finds my article about doing the ice bath first and then doing the exercise, and he's like, all right, I gotta try this. The problem is that Joe's ice bath is outdoors and it's December 
And if you remember, like it was an unseasonably cold period in Texas in December, and he's got his Morozco out there. And so he tells Goggins the story. He's like, I go out there in my underwear, and I hate it. And Goggins, because, he goes, it's really hard. You know, if you're coming out of the sauna and you're sweating and you're hot, you get right into the ice bath, you're like, this feels great. He goes, it kind of sucks, but, but it's easier than if you just wake up in the morning and it's 40 degrees out and you got to get into that 32-degree water. Goggins, he's a former Navy SEAL. He trained at Coronago Island. They practically drowned those guys in the Pacific Ocean as part of, you know, Hell Week and their buds training. And Goggins says... There is nothing that will make you question everything in life like cold water. And so Joe was kind of tapping into that psychological effect. But why would you put yourself through that? Because I had written this post, and there was nothing really wrong with my testosterone levels. When I got this PSA scare, and what was I, 53 at the time, and... I'm very self-conscious about what I'm trying to do with my health and I got to start dating again. And I see this elevated prostate thing and I go on Google and it's frightening because the next step when your PSA is too high is to, you know, go get a, an exam. And then they're going to feel you up and then they're going to say, well, you feel a little inflamed. Oh, we should probably do a biopsy. And that means that they're going to like break the membrane around your prostate, sample a piece of tissue, pull that. And there's some terrible stories. Mark Sisson has a tweet on this, a prostate that went bad. Uh, sorry, a prostate a biopsy. Uh, he became infected. He uh, developed sepsis. It damn near killed him. And every man I'd talked to had some nightmare story like that. I didn't want that. So I said, I'm doing keto. I'm doing ice baths. And the exercise is just a coincidence. I came out of the ice bath. I was freaking cold. And so, you know, I got my steel mace out. I got my bar out. I'm doing my push-ups. It really not a lot of exercise. And then I'd walk to campus. Because I was checking the box at the lab that says, give me all the male hormone panel. They measured testosterone. And damned if I didn't go from like 700 up to 1140, 1100 something or other. Now think about this, Mark, because um, a lot of your guys in your audience, they're not at 1100. They're healthy, and their doctors would say, oh, yeah, you're doing fine. And these guys would be like, wait a second. You know, I eat right. I work out. I'm doing five times a, a week. I got my recovery days. I'm taking care of myself. What am I doing sitting at seven or 800, which is a good number according to most uh, medical professionals? How does this old fat guy get up to 1140? I took the ice bath and then the exercise. I got my number and I said, this doesn't make any sense. So I went to the library and in there are studies about cold exposure and testosterone. And they show if you do the ice bath after it's not always an ice bath. Sometimes it's cryotherapy. Sometimes it's just cold stimulation. And, but if you do the cold after the exercise, testosterone and luteinizing hormone go way down. If you do the cold and then do the exercise, testosterone and luteinizing hormone, they go way up. I didn't know what luteinizing hormone was. Uh, you know, Derek knows, but I was kind of ignorant. After I got my PSA down, down to lesson one. All right, all right, this is bulletproof. Nobody is going to want to do a biopsy on me now. I'm going to share this with my urologist. He looked at my results, 
And he's about my age. And he goes, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, okay. Mm, well, tell you what, we're going to get one more test. I thought it was about my prostate because he didn't tell me. He ordered a luteinizing hormone test because he was sure I must have been juicing. You know, and the luteinizing hormone stimulates testosterone production in your gonads. So if I had high testosterone and low LH, he would have been like, Seeger, you got to get off the juice. This isn't, you know, he would have been count. No, I got that tested. Sure enough, 8.9 is like above range, you know, red result on my lab report. You're too high. I took it to my urologist. He said, okay. He was not curious in the least. He didn't say, how are you doing this? You know, he's just like, we'll leave your prostate alone. We'll leave you alone. I don't want to see you again. <laughs> Get out of here. And you'd think he'd ask, but um, Joe was really the first person to take like that acute level of curiosity and say, how is this happening? And I credit Liver King's debacle with, you know, piquing the curiosity for Joe at that time. Right, right. And, and no one, and, and as you said before, Thomas, that, that was exactly right. Everyone in the world had been doing, well, I don't know about the world, but I know in my circle had been doing cold plunge post-training. And then I was at our facilities, uh, one of our facilities in downtown Miami, and I went in the cold plunge and I got out and as I was showering, I overheard three 20 something year old young men. Maybe they were 19, 20. Oh man, you got to go in the cold plunge before. When I, as I heard it, I said, okay, I, when I get out of this thing, I'm at the shower. I'm asking this young man. I said, I noticed that, uh, I overheard you say that you go in before. Why is that? He goes, I heard it on Rogan. And I go, and he heard it from you. So I was thinking, the, it's amazing the trickle down effect. So kudos to you, Thomas. That is awesome. And now everyone gets in the cold plunge before training. And then uh, there was a couple of, uh, I guess, I don't know if they were doctors, but there were people in the know of weight training. And they said, you know what? It, it really doesn't affect you if you go in post workout. And as you said, Huberman said, no, it absolutely does. It's a significant difference. And you got to be mindful of that. Yeah. And um, it's not even just whole body. Like you say, well, you know, I only did my knees because I really worked hard. I was doing my sprints or something, and I want to recover faster, so I'm only going to do my knees. It doesn't matter. Even partial. It's the cold stimulation. It does not have to be whole body. It activates your nervous system, and it tells your body, whoa, okay, something's going on here. And instead of building up the muscles, it shuts those processes down so that you can... I mean, it's great to not be sore. So what did I tell Mike Mutzel? You know, if you're doing the Tour de France and you're in the middle of a multi-day competition or something and you want to recover, you're not training, you're performing. I get it. You want to take the pain out. You want to bring the mobility back. Use the ice bath to speed your recovery so you can begin performing again. But there, I would also cite Craig Heller's work at Stanford. What he did was took some of his graduate students and these other subjects, and he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do some heat extraction, not an ice bath. But he developed these cool mitts where you extract heat out of the palms of the hand. We're going to do this in the middle of the workout to cool down your body so your mitochondria don't get overheated. And he saw these huge boosts in performance, like peak muscle power, 
uh, delayed fatigue, so another way to say it, increased endurance. And these guys were doing like 144% more pull-ups. And, and I'm kind of making that up. Uh, but if you go to the journal article, you're going to say, holy crap, how did they get such a boost? So Heller was on Huberman's podcast, and the research backs him up. If you do, it's called pre-cooling when you do it before your workout. You get a big performance boost. Then there's per-cooling, which is in the middle of your workout or in the middle of your performance, another performance boost. The idea is to prevent your mitochondria from overheating because when they overheat, they shut down the muscle metabolism. They throttle it so that they don't get damaged. When you extract the heat, it allows your mitochondria to work harder for longer. What you said, Thomas, I mean, it's kind of what I learned early on, correct me if I'm wrong, when you, when they overheat, they shut down, is that correct? It's uh, self-protective. Uh, well, um, well self, go ahead. Self-protective, but that's kind of like when you retrain in a cardiovascular manner, you really can't build the muscle because it's overheated, so it shuts down, so you can't be, be in that state to build muscle. Because you're, you're turning one on, you can't have them both turned on at the same time. That's why practice one discipline, basically. With same thing? Uh, it sounds right. The point of, that, with, that I'm making with the mitochondria is as they work, they produce reactive oxygen species. And they're supposed to. Because, you know, these mitochondria, they're converting chemical fuels, uh, whether it's glucose or triglycerides, into ATP. The ATP carries that energy to the cells, whether it's going to be wound repair or exercise or even thinking. You know, your brain uses like 20% of your metabolic energy. So ATP is the principal energy carrier for growth, for whatever it is. But as your mitochondria are doing this chemical conversion, there are stray electrons produced. It produces reactive oxygen species. Those RS, ROS signal new mitochondria. That is, they signal mitobiogenesis. And it makes sense. We gotta have some ROS to tell the cells, make more mitochondria. This is why cardio improves your endurance because it improves your metabolic throughput. And there's some great measures, whether it's VO2 max, but you don't need a measure. You know this as you're getting stronger and your endurance improves. But here's the problem. Too many ROS will damage the mitochondria. And it, even though it's signaling mitobiogenesis, if you're not giving the damaged mitochondria enough time to recover, they don't come back stronger. They just stay in a chronically debilitated state. So why is that? Well, there are three pathways to mitochondrial injury. The first is too many carbs overloads the mitochondria, they're doing too much conversion into fats that will be stored in your uh, white fat cells, you need to give them a break. And so that would be intermittent fasting or going keto for a little while. The second way is getting your light, getting your circadian rhythm out of whack. The mitochondria depend upon melatonin. They make their own melatonin because these melatonin will absorb excess reactive oxygen species. The melatonin allows the mitochondria to work harder for longer without becoming damaged. But melatonin is the, the hormone of the circadian cycle. If you get your sleep or your light out of whack, your mitochondria will suffer. The third one is seed oils. Seed oils will be metabolized. You can use them as fuel. 
But what a lot of people don't know is that fats are also incorporated into our body as material. So when your omega-6, omega-3 ratio is out of whack, your body is using the omega-6 fatty acids to build membranes, including mitochondrial membranes, because it's not just fat for energy storage, it's fat as a structural material. When the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in these membranes gets out of whack, they don't function well, and it will impinge upon your metabolism. Now, exercise is great for mitochondria because it produces enough reactive oxygen species to stimulate mitobiogenesis. But if you do not allow yourself to rest and recover, you know, now we talk about active recovery. If you don't give your mitochondria a rest, then what you thought was going to be stimulating just turns out to be damaging. So what does that rest look like? There are two types. One is um, you've been at it too long. Your workout session is too long. Your marathon is too long. Your body is shutting down. We call it fatigue, and it's to protect your mitochondria from short-term acute damage. But the second one is you're working out every day. You're doing two-a-days. I mean, it, and maybe in college, you know, you're on the basketball team and you got to show up early and you're doing your two-a-days and the or hockey and the coaches, you know, making you puke at the beginning of the season. I don't know. Yeah. When you're young, you can put up with a lot. That's right. But you and I shouldn't be doing more than, I, you know better than me, but if you're exercising um, so much that you're not allowing your body to recover, then you are cheating your body out of that, um, that gains period. You're putting it in a chronic state of stress from which it will never reach what you're really going for is a higher level of peak performance. Mm -hmm. And part of that reason is because your mitochondria aren't uh, having a chance to recover. Mm -hmm. What stimulates mitobiogenesis? Cold exposure. And it does it by activating the brown fat in your body. When you activate the brown fat, you are producing heat. It's called thermogenesis. Brown fat are packed with mitochondria because one of the things that they have to do with the glucose and the lipids in your bloodstream is just keep you warm. When you pre-cool your workout, you rev up your central nervous system, you rev up your metabolism, you go do a great workout, and instead of your mitochondria being stressed by getting too hot and fatiguing, they're like, they're putting it out. They're ready to go. You are going to see, we measure this at ARX in Austin, you are going to see measurable increases, 20 to 30% in whatever your max is, and an extension of your endurance because your mitochondria are performing better. Then rest. Don't put them in the cold. Don't stress your mitochondria after you just stressed them go into whatever your rest and recovery cycle is wait before you get cold again mm, super interesting you know as you were saying before if you don't allow i mean i see you know i'm surrounded by all kinds of fitness wellness professionals and you know it's it sounds funny but they're they're not really they're wellness professionals but they don't apply or they're not practitioners or the protocols to their life they just they're in a constant you know, and there, there are a few different conversations. One is that they think they're training and they're training in excess to improve physical fitness and overall health and well-being. But in turn, they're actually, as you said, they're damaging because they're not allowing themselves, you know, basically the law of supercompensation to come into play where they can recover and be their very best selves. And I always say 
to clients and people in our community, there's two types of training. There's training for performance and there's training for attrition. Now the Navy SEALs, they train for attrition. Now if you're a professional football player, you should never be in attrition. You should be for optimal performance. You have to decide what you're trying to do. If you're, as you said before, if uh, you're at hockey practice and a coach is trying to make you throw up, clearly we know that's not best for the team. But the coach is giving you a lesson that maybe that toughness is building resilience. And we can have that resilience conversation. And we can have that conversation. But it's psychological. But it's not physiological. Right. 100%. So those lessons, I do believe, are necessary from time to time. But to put the body in an optimal state, it requires you know, one to back off. I get a lot of flack about, hey, I see you training every day, but you don't know what I'm doing every day because sometimes I move and I allow myself, I call it a BS workout where I allow myself to suck on that day. I'm not killing myself. I'm just getting my body moving because I feel better when I get moving with my joints, with blood flow, with overall health and fitness. But I can't go to the well and push myself to the edge of darkness every day. Otherwise, I tell people that you're you're only given so many heartbeats, you're only given so much when you're born and you're racing to the finish line. The idea is to enjoy the journey and feel like your best self so you can be better every time you go out for your age group or whatever your goals are. So what, what are your thoughts on resilience and the practice of resilience and going through the ice bath and things of that nature for resilience because you went deep on it. I got a uh, text message from a woman in Australia and she said, my husband, he used to be former special forces in Australia. He's now out of the military, but he's really struggling. Um, I want him to take the ice bath. Do you have any advice? And I'm like, my advice is do not coerce anybody into ice baths. Like, they have to get in of their own volition. Don't nag him. Like, I mean, it's fine if you want to buy an ice bath and put it there in the backyard or something and say, hey, honey, I'm going to try this out. But you... But please don't push or bully or coerce or incentivize anybody to get into the ice bath. So I, I got a text message a couple of months later, and she said, it's going great. He's quit drinking. He's, like, doing it every day. It's like, uh, you know, this is Australia, so it's 4 degrees C, 3 degrees C, um, a little under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. He's out there doing 15 minutes, and I feel like I got my husband back. Everything is so much better. So, of course, then I get a message from the husband, uh, and w which, thank goodness, because I'd rather be in direct touch with him. And he says, um, so this really curious thing has happened. I measure my heart rate variability, and I think he's got whoop or, or one of these wearables. Um, he goes, I was at 16 at my lowest moment when I was, it was really dark for me. Now I'm at 75, and he did it in less than two months. So I called my friend Jay Wiles, a new health. He's the heart rate variability expert. And I said, Jay, does that sound plausible? He goes, yeah. Like uh, an ice bath, if it's cold enough, it will activate your central nervous system. It will require you to go through the process of calming yourself down. It improves something he called vagal tone. Now, the vagal tone is your parasympathetic. The sympathetic division is the one like fight or flight. And the fact is, this guy's special forces, he'd been in fight or flight, like mission-oriented. That was the world in which he thrived. And then when you come out of that, you're going from Afghanistan to, oh, no, we have a meeting with the principal about Johnny. You know, his reading is below grade. What is he supposed to do? All right, let's talk about reading. You know, like, he, there's no... 
activation of the system that he is chronically accustomed to. He was out of his element. He put himself in the ice bath, activation. And then he practices the breathing. The, the mantra I choose is, this is what cold feels like. Everything in your body is saying, you're going to die. The fight or flight is like, get out of here. And you say, we're fine. This is what cold feels like. I'm going to stay in here, you know, a little longer. His heart rate variability, and HRV is the best physiological measure of the adaptability of your body to stress. It goes way up because he found an environment that, um, that became familiar to him again. He found that, that feeling of being alive, that challenge of the mission, and the practice of calming himself down, and now he's here for his kids, he's here for his wife, or whatever it needs to be. The HRV is, uh, I now call it the best measure of resilience that we have, because we talk about mindset. You know, what separates Goggins from the guy who rings out on hell? We, we don't know. It's some kind of intangible. But the fact is that your heart does, your thoughts, your, um, you know, just the slightest thing, a breath, requires your heart to make small changes to the uh, changing metabolic needs. And these are microscopic. When your heart is not adaptive, your psychology is not adaptive. So I'm um, trying to tap into more of this HRV as a measure of resilience. And people are using the cold pressure test and cold exposure to stress people out. But it doesn't work on my subjects anymore. It's like, you know, they're so used to it that um, they're like, yeah, okay, sign me up. There is, um, Rogan said this one to Andrew Schultz. Uh, he says, there is a point, though, where you never conquer the ice. You never really get over it. When it's cold enough, and I go at 34, it is always going to give, yeah. Like a lot of people, you know, he was giving Huberman a bunch of crap because Huberman will plunge at 50. And Joe's like, no, 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 get in the Morozco, you know, do it colder. And Huberman would say, no, no, I move the water around and it feels cold. Huberman, you know, okay. There's a certain, even after you're cold acclimated, there's a certain temperature where you're going to get that psychological activation. Metabolically, you don't need it. But if what you're going for are the psychological gains of challenging yourself, stressing your body, then you got to get cold enough to feel the gas reflex. You got to get cold enough to frighten you a little bit. That's interesting. And we, as you said before, we have, uh, I think our lowest is 37, 36, and, and you said 34, and that went right through my spine because I know that 36 and 34, people think that's not a big difference. That That's a really big difference. That's a big Mark, difference. That's you a big feel it. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you said 50. I've been in 50. I can stick my hand at our different clubs and stick my hand. And I say, you know, they go, oh, what is this, 39? And I go, this is probably 52, right? But there's a, those are two different sports in the place that you have to go. And you said it really, uh, uh, you well said, you said that self-talk is so important. If it's too cold, I, I mean, I saw a young man get in and he started huffing and puffing and I got nervous for him. I told him to get out because it looked like, it didn't matter how cold the water was, excuse me, it mattered how he was reacting to it. If you're reacting that way, that's not for you. You have to go to a place where you say, I'm gonna stay in here for 30 seconds and do my very best and that's my only goal. If it's unbearable, get out. But as 
you mentioned earlier, everyone has their own uh, scale of what's unbearable and what's bearable, right? And then if you're at 34, you've obviously become seasoned to it and you need that 34. You get in 50, you're gonna be like, what am I doing in here? Doing uh, in I here. can snorkel around all day in 50. I mean, I've done it right. right in the tank uh, at a friend's house. He keeps his at 50. He was just starting. And I'm like, well, take it down one degree Fahrenheit every day. You know, he's down to 39 now, which is terrific. But at this time, he's at 50. And I thought, okay, what can I do to challenge myself? And he's saying, well, I got a snorkel. He loves scuba diving, but he does it in the tropics, you know. So I put on the mask and the snorkel, and I go around upside down. Do not ever breath hold in the cold. It's not worth it. It can be dangerous. You might, if you do your Wim Hof breathing and you hyperventilate, and then you do a breath hold in the cold, you can lose the urge to breathe and drown. That is, you pass out before you get the urge. So Scott Carney has documented this, and I just want to make that note. Keep your breath work and your cold separate. Don't do the breath hold. But with the snorkel, 50 degrees... I mean, it was all I could do to challenge myself. Uh, and it's part of what motivated him to come down a little further, I think, is he saw that, well, if you do it enough, you get, like anything, you get acclimated to it. My line is about 39. If it's above 39, it's boring. And if it's below 39, I'm going to feel some activation. And it's also, that that's your line, uh, Thomas, but, you know, every individual is different, Yes. And then we talk about timing. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about a time in? Because I have people that will walk, approach me and say, Mark, you, you'd be so proud of me. I did 45 minutes in the cold plunge. Minutes in the cold plunge. That, no, 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 that, I'm not proud that, of you. Yeah, yeah, I'm not proud of you. And that cold plunge is probably broken. So, <laughs> so what are your feelings on time, Thomas? So I do two to four minutes, uh, unless I'm shooting a video, in which case it's however long the video takes. And what I've noticed is... If it's under five minutes, I'm not going to develop a real shiver. Uh, I mean, I will get cold. I will feel the pain of vasoconstriction. But if I go five, six minutes at 34 degrees, I am going to get some shiver. And so I do that once or twice a week. But for the most part, like today, I did a minute. And, you know, it was just, that's what felt right. Sometimes I'm staring at that ice and, uh, you know, I'm almost talking myself out of it. Like, oh, you could skip a day. Yeah, who would know? You know, you'd be fine. And I say, no, just 15 seconds. I'm just going to do 15 seconds. I'm just going to get in because the most difficult part is the very first 15 seconds. And I get in and I'm like, well, this isn't so bad. I guess I'll stay in. I don't actually have a stopwatch or anything, but I stayed in for long enough for me today. And a minute felt like a victory because I was just in one of those moods uh where you know it, it wasn't a good morning and i almost chickened out so in that moment i'm like i'm just gonna do this and i almost always push myself a little bit further so if you're starting out go cold enough to gasp if you don't hear the gasp reflex if you don't fuck oh if you don't lose a little bit of control it's not cold enough if you're starting out go long enough to shiver because you don't have a lot of brown fat, especially you're down in Florida. You said you got the facility in Miami. Your guys aren't, even the uh, Atlantic Ocean isn't cold. They probably have no brown fat, and it won't take long. It might only take a minute or two for them to start feeling that shiver. That's how they know. They're recruiting new brown fat. They've done metabolically what they need to do. 
So cold enough to gasp, long enough to shiver is a good rule of thumb for starting out. After you're acclimated, I don't think it's necessary to shiver every time. After you're acclimated, it looks like about 11 minutes a week is enough. And that was a study done in Denmark by Huberman's friend, uh, Susanna Soberg. She surveyed these Danish winter swimmers. She did PET scans on them to see how their brown fat was acting. And she just asked them, how often do you go in? How long do you stay? And she reported it was an average of like 11 minutes a week. And they're jumping in the fjords and stuff in Denmark. I mean, the water is cold. It was like four degrees C. And so she reported that, says, looks like 11 minutes a week. No matter how you split it up is enough to metabolically do it when you're acclimated to the cold. I want to go back, though, to what you said about it's how you're doing it. Um, I worked with a bunch of you know football players, some bodybuilders. There's a certain mentality that gets you through the contact sports. And it's a tough guy mentality. And you've got to have respect for what these guys have achieved. But the problem is that you cannot fight the cold. You know, Rogan said it, the cold is going to win every time. So you get in there and you're like, Rogan did 20 minutes. And the only reason he did 20 minutes is because Jocko Wilnick called him up and shamed him into it or something. Minute and a half, what is that, you know? And so Rogan's like, all right, I'm going to film it. I'm going to put it on Instagram. I'm going to show the world how tough I am. That's not it. You can't fight your way through the cold. you got to relax into the cold. So my daughter taught me this one because a lot of that tough guy mentality is, you know, Goggins epitomizes it, is about persisting through the pain. Well, my daughter studies Krav Maga. And in Krav Maga, you're getting hit and you're getting thrown around and stuff. Inevitably, you get hurt. She was training with some people who were way above her level. But it was COVID and they invited her to come in and nobody had anything to do. And so they're doing a little sparring and her knee's taken out and she's on the mat. And all the black belts are like, oh, no, uh, you know, I must have overdid it. So, are you OK? Are you OK? And my daughter kisses her knee and she says, it's OK, knee you're still on the team. You know, we love you, Nee. You just take a minute. And when you feel better, we're going to bring you back on. We'll put you back into work. But for right now, do whatever you need. What my daughter taught me was talk to your body like they're on your team. Talk to your body like you would talk to a teammate. And if a teammate gets hurt on the field, you're not like, suck it up, buttercup. You know, your knee's not hurt. You, you take a knee, you say, hey, uh, how does it feel? Can I get you some ice? No, we got another guy for you. Talk to your body, whatever is hurting in the ice bath. Talk to it like you love it, like it's a teammate. And you want it to know that it's, there's a place in your body for it, which is totally the opposite of the way, you know, a lot of guys, they get angry at, you know, they got a sore elbow because they overthrew in their last start or something, or maybe they work too hard on their squats and their knees are squawking at them and they're angry. They feel betrayed by that body part. When you get into the cold, tell your knees you love them. Tell your knees the, the whole rest of the body is here for you right now. What do you need? Do you need more blood? Do you need more, you know, thoughts? Do you need more? Send it the love it needs to come back and perform again. You have to surrender that attitude of fight, fight, fight when you get into the cold because there's nobody in there to fight with. It's just you. 
And at some point, I've never talked to Goggins about this, but it would be an interesting conversation. At some point, don't be the person who beats yourself up. The whole rest of the world has that job to do. So, you know, the interesting thing that you said is to me is it's kind of like life. It's how you talk to yourself is everything. And when you're going through pain and when you're going through misery, I mean, you can either make it worse or you can make it better. So it's, it's super interesting to me that all these athletes kind of feel that, you know, you, what you need to do is be tough, be a tough guy. And what I've learned, what I've learned myself is, you know, if you're having a miserable experience, you need to figure out how to make it a positive experience. And, and that's really it. And how you talk to yourself is everything when you're in the cold. So can you talk to us a little bit about where the dopamine hit comes from when you're in the cold plunge? Uh, basically, it's it's so euphoric at the end of the day. I don't understand the mechanisms. That is, I don't understand what part of the nervous system stimulates the axon or whatever the hell it is that um, that makes this dopamine rush happen. I do understand the Polish study, and this is oh, years ago now, uh, probably more than 10. The Polish study in which they put people in the cold water, removed their blood, assayed their blood for all these different neurotransmitters and hormones to try and see what's going on, and they measured two, three times boost in dopamine. And you know it because you can feel it. When you do a couple or three minutes in the cold and you get out and you feel like Superman, like you've cheated death, that is the dopamine. That's the norepinephrine hitting your brain and creating this feeling of euphoria. Well, at that point, of course I want to go work out. Of course I want to like throw some kettlebells around or get my steel mace or something like that because I feel like Superman. But if what you're doing it for is mental health, it's incredibly powerful. There are some really good studies of people who had resistant, that is drug-resistant depression, therapy-resistant depression. So this is long-term, this is severe. And then they started a program of either winter swimming or ice baths, and their body was making the chemicals as a result of the cold stimulation that they hadn't felt in years. Especially when you're doing it as part of a group and it's social, that feeling of euphoria breaks the depression and allows them to get back in their own game, so to speak, enjoy their life again. There's a couple of reasons for it. One is the short term, the norepinephrine and the dopamine that create these feelings of, um, of like lust for the world and for life. The other one is it's really good for the metabolism and your brain needs energy. So sometimes these negative emotions are a result of a metabolic irregularity in the brain. The brain cells just aren't getting the energy that they need. And the cold exposure can help with that too. Are you a big sauna guy? Not so much. I live in Phoenix and I haven't broken down and bought myself a sauna because when I'm ready for the heat, I just park my, sun, my car in the sun. You know, it gets up to like 160 degrees. If I drive around in the summertime, it's, I call it a car sauna. It might not be the safest um, thing. Um, but, you know, I've done that a couple of times when I need the heat. Frankly, you know, summertime in Phoenix, literally, you can't fry an egg on the sidewalk. So I have a lot of heat and not a lot of cold. But it's October now, and the temperatures are going down. And I was just talking with a friend of mine about how it would be good for me to get some sauna back in my life. Well, I mean, I'm definitely more of a cold plunge person than sauna. 
um, but you have a very unique cold plunge, and this is uh, your company, yes? Yeah, Moraz Co Forge. Can you tell us more about that? Well, we started it. Um, me and my former student Jason Stauffer. We started Moraz Co Forge because there was no such thing as an ice bath that made ice. I mean, if there was, we probably would have bought it because we were doing the bit where you buy 200 pounds of ice and you put it in the horse trough. But the problem is in the backyard in Phoenix, it's like 20 minutes later, all the ice is melted. And um, it, we wanted something that was going to be cheaper long term and more satisfying that we could do every day without having to plan a trip for it. So we thought, OK, uh, there's nothing out there. We're engineers. We ought to make an ice bath that actually makes ice. We did that. cost me way more money than I thought it should, you know, with parts and doing it wrong and having to replace it and stuff. But then we had a party, had some people over. People are doing ice baths. And one of the guys there said, uh, Jeremy Mudik was our first customer because the people were talking about buying one. And Jeremy said, oh, I'll buy one. And now Jeremy runs like a wellness center. Uh, he's bought another one since then. He's got uh, all the compression therapy and the red light. He's got my green light in there. He's got three different, he's got an ice bath and two cold plunges. Um, Jeremy is real leading edge. And after he bought one, we thought we, we, should, we should put this up for sale. We never thought it was gonna be more than like a backyard business. Then COVID happened, and everybody got into um, home fitness, home health care. The attitudes about taking care of your body changed drastically, and you've seen it. Like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, even NPR oh, yeah. did a story on ice baths. There are now, you know, a half a dozen. There's more than half a dozen. There are like a dozen different competitors. Um, some of them are like imitation Morozco. Some of them... Uh, do a little bit different thing, and they're way cheaper. So the industry has exploded, but nobody else makes ice. And the reason is it's hard. So they say things instead like, well, you don't need all that pesky ice. It's the ice bath without ice. I don't know what the hell they're talking about, but I do get that um, some people don't want it as cold as I want it. Some people ask me, well, why do you need the ice? And I say, you probably don't. I need ice. I need ice because when I'm looking at the water and I see that ice, that's what scares me. That's what gives right. me that visceral feeling. And I'm in there and I feel it around my neck. And, uh, you know, somebody asked me on Instagram, um, well, what about, you know, if the water is moving, doesn't that break up the thermal layer? Because Huberman talks about this and it does. I said, but you know what's colder than breaking up your thermal layer? is being up to your neck in cubes that are melting on your skin. Like, I think I'm plenty cold enough. And, and, and so you have the ability in Memorosco to set the temperature at maybe, let's say, if you wanted it at 50, I don't know who would, but, uh, or 34? Yeah, mine is 33 wow. right now, but I cycle it on and off. Uh, that is, we have a two-stage temperature controller. So it goes down to 33, and I'll build up like an inch of ice, and it's on the bottom where the coils are. Then I'll set it at 38. It does all this automatically. That ice melts up to the top, which is where I like it, instead of the bottom. And then it drops back down to 33, and it makes me more ice. It's got a, a very nice, uh, a beautiful look to it. And it's also like classy but vintage. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Yeah. It's, you know, we wanted something... Um, that if you accidentally hit it with your steel mace, 
you wouldn't mind. You know, like we wanted something rugged. And this metaphor of the forge, you've never seen a clean, beautiful forge because you're in there like melting steel and stuff. It's supposed to be tough and communicate that natural look. So I had a woman in um, Scottsdale back when we were starting off, and she knew about spas and wellness centers and float tanks, and she's saying, your look is terrible. You've got to change it. You should go with a smooth white plastic, and there's a competing company that does that, right? You know, and that's going to make people feel more comfortable and show it's high-tech. And I said, thank you very much for your feedback and your time. We have exactly the design, you know, based upon your feedback that we think is going to appeal to our customers because ain't nobody want to, you know, that that is doing it the way we're doing it, want to get into your sleek, plastic, blah, blah, blah. It should, she said, but it looks like it's built in a barn. I said, I wish I had a barn. You know, this was <laughs> built in the backyard. We didn't even have any shade. And so we've kept that look. You know, we're indoors now and we're a much bigger operation, but it appeals to to you for for those reasons, the aesthetic is consistent with the experience. You're not gonna yeah, you don't, you, you're not gonna get a facial and then get a Morosco, you know. Right. I love that. I love that. And the first time I saw it, and you said it, it produces ice. Is that like like is there a lot of ice in there? Is it the top layer? How does that work? Uh, for me, I put a lot of Epsom salt, and the Epsom salt helps break up. It softens the ice. Uh, there's some good videos. Justin Hoagland's is the best because he would have like six inches of ice. Mika Lowe, uh, him too. And then he gets a steel mace out and he breaks up all the ice. I got tired of that. So I put in eight pounds of Epsom salt. I get some magnesium benefit, but it also softens the ice to make it easier to break up. So I keep about an inch of ice on the top of my forge and it's just enough. I like the aesthetic. I like the way it feels on my skin. I like the way it sounds when I get in and out. It reminds me that this is an ice bath and not a cold plunge. Right, right. So can you, going back, I know you gave us an amazing uh, hour of your time. I can't thank you enough, Thomas. Can you go back? You want to hit our, our, our list of maybe the, the things that are going to better our health or our testosterone boosting techniques just to recap them? Um, anything that you think will benefit the young people. So when I'm in the locker rooms and in our facilities, they're going to say, Hey, I heard Thomas say that. And they're listening. They really are listening and they're doing it, which is great. I agree with you because I've gotten so many messages since that Rogan podcast. Uh, people are saying, um, you know, I've made this change and I started doing the exercise after my ice bath and I've seen, and then they send me their labs uh, because Twitter is mean. You know, I'll put some results out there and these medical doctors will say, well, that's impossible. There is no peer-reviewed scientific study that says that what happened to you actually happened to you, which is all a bunch of crap. There's plenty of peer-reviewed research. It just sounds unbelievable. But I've been getting these messages from all over the world, and it's guys in their 30s. Uh, one 69-year-old guy took his testosterone from under 600, about 580, which is a good level for him, right? He's 69. He took it up to 1145, which is higher than mine. So what are you doing? Wow. I say, he goes, well, you know, I go on a walk and I go down to the pond. He lives in Massachusetts. It's cold in the winter. And then I go over a swim in the pond and then I kind of power walk home. That's all he does. Wow. He's not doing, wow. you know, weights and workout. The fact is it doesn't take very much cold and it doesn't take very much exercise. 
two to four minutes of cold, and then about 20 minutes, depending upon how brisk you are, of exercise, you're going to be fine. And you don't need to lift big weight. As a matter of fact, you probably shouldn't until your body rewarms. Whether it's squats or, you know, I like my mace. I'll do my lunges sometimes. I got kettlebells. I got my chin-up bar. And sometimes it's just walking. And that is enough to rewarm your body, give your body the chance to respond to whatever you just put it through. And what these guys are telling me is even guys who are healthy, like 645, that's not a bad one. He does his exercise after his ice bath. He bumps up to 813. He's 31 years old. These are pretty good results. I got a message from India. This guy took himself from 416 up to uh, 700, well, 698. And he did it in four months. That's pretty good. Wow. So, that is good. So I asked him, well, what else are you doing? Vitamin D and testosterone are correlated with one another. If you're vitamin D deficient, it's going to be very difficult to get your testosterone up to those, you know, top of range numbers. So you've got to take care of your vitamin D. After vitamin D, uh, make sure your zinc is good and get your magnesium. If there isn't any Epsom salt in your ice bath, then take a magnesium supplement. Almost any one of them will do. And there are, you know, a dozen different ones. I like magnesium L-threonate. Uh, I like magnesium citrate, but some guys are taking magnesium chloride. So the, these two metals that are important to metabolism and the testosterone levels seem like they're associated with the strength of your metabolism, magnesium and zinc and vitamin D. Now in Florida, you guys are probably all right. But if you're going to get your testosterone checked, get your vitamin D checked as well. It, the two move together. So when all of these things are in place, my guess is you're going to get results that are a lot like the results people are sending me. That's super helpful. Super helpful. I tell you what, I wish I had a freezing pond because I would walk <laughs> over that thing and jump in it every day. Yeah, you would also be shoveling. I grew up in uh, southeastern Massachusetts, and I'll tell you, I do not miss those freezing days. <laughs> I don't. They are cold shoveling shoveling and all those things people in miami they can't you can't even get a cold shower here yep you can't you can't in phoenix really in the can't. summertime the tap water is like 88 degrees where in massachusetts uh i grew up in fall river massachusetts fall river yep yeah. i was in nantucket for years so it's kind of a ways right. from fall river but i know your territory the right, feels like february is the longest month you know in new england it just gray and windy and miserable and you're like i can't wait for this to be over at least in march you know the daffodils might or the crocuses might spring up and you're like i can see the end is in sight special it's special well thomas i cannot thank you enough thank you so much for spending your time uh with me um a lot of great data points here a lot of things that are going to help a lot of listeners and we're going to implement some of these things and I've been playing with the cold before training, and I'm going to get my test done. Um, I like it. I I did it for a month, and then I just got my test done last week. And, uh, and I'm going to see if anything happens. It may not be too long. Uh, and then I'm going to try again for two to three months and see how it goes because my testosterone was very low. And, you know, something interesting you said before, you go from a special forces soldier to teaching kids to, to read it's not the same thing. And I have no doubt when I was playing professional football and I was at the peak, peak, peak state, 
I mean, I would look at pictures of myself and people would say, oh my God, you must have been on so many steroids. I said, I didn't even take creatine. Yeah. Like, I didn't take anything. I didn't need to. I was young and my testosterone was through the roof and I love my sport and I love the uh, aggressive nature of it. And that in itself, I have no doubt boosted my testosterone. Now, going from that to being a normal human being, I think it's incredibly... Uh, it's a normal thing to have a testosterone number drop because you're not doing something with great aggression. What are your thoughts with that? There are um, psychological factors that impact testosterone. So there's so many things. Uh, it's on a daily cycle. Your testosterone is highest in the morning and then it'll decline throughout the day. It's on a seasonal cycle because it correlates with vitamin D and sun exposure. But there are also these psychological elements of testosterone where you know, if you lose at a video game, there are studies that show testosterone goes down. Testosterone in men is like the competitive hormone. The feeling of winning is especially good, especially good boost to your testosterone, but you don't even have to win. If it's a good game and you've, um, you've competed well, you can still get a boost in your tea. So this psychological element, we probably can't overlook it when it comes to the ice bath because I feel like I've won. I start every day with a victory, you know, coming out feeling like I have cheated death again. I think the physiological right. and the psychological are working together in that respect. And I think that just because you overcome, we say that, and I know that um, you've certainly heard this before, but overcoming something is certainly a strong contributor to building confidence. When people say you should have confidence in yourself, it's impossible to have confidence without follow through or accomplishment. If you build up consistency, you're consistent with your actions day to day. That doesn't make you a genius. It doesn't make you the strongest guy in the world. It just makes you confident as a human that you can stay the course and persevere and push through. And I think that's a huge factor with all these things we're talking about today. I think there's two kinds of confidence. Uh, the first kind, which is the kind that most people mean, I know what I'm doing. I know it's going to turn out fine. I have, you know, if not perfect knowledge, I have expertise because I've done this before. That's one kind of confidence. The other kind of confidence is I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what's going to happen and it's going to be okay. I will figure it out as I go. That's the second time, or the second kind is the kind you need for entrepreneurship, for personal growth, when you're outside your comfort zone and you say, yeah, I could humiliate myself. People are going to make fun of me. I'm going to feel shame. And that's all fine. I'll, I'll deal with that when those feelings come up. That second kind of confidence is harder for a lot of people to get to, I think. I think so. I think so. More, more consistency and more follow through will always help. I agree. Thomas, this has been an amazing treat. Once again, I cannot thank you enough. This is going to be a great, great episode that everyone's going to learn a tremendous amount from. So I thank hope you so. very much. For You're welcome. And thank you for reaching out.